Genesis chapter 6. We ended last week with Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. We'll review here in just a moment and then move in to verses 9 and following. I'd like to talk to you today about making the final cut. Most of you would recognize that terminology from your school days when you competed for a position on an athletic team or maybe for a part in a play or a chair in an orchestra or something along those lines. After a tryout or an audition, a list is posted bearing the names of those chosen to continue participating, and we say that these people made the cut. If your name is not on the list, it means that you got cut. Uh, and are eliminated from further participation in that particular activity. Getting cut is not a fun experience, is it? Uh, Many tears have been shed by students walking away from a cut list, uh, which did not any longer bear their name. But I think it's probably very healthy for us to go through that experience, because getting cut is really part of life. We're not selected for that job promotion sometime after school is over, or we are not chosen as somebody's mate, or we're denied a loan at a bank, or something along those lines. There's many ways in which we don't make the cut. That's part of life. And it is healthy for us to learn to live joyfully with such disappointments. But there is an ultimate and final cut awaiting each of us, which we absolutely must survive. Every human being is destined to stand before the Creator, but the vast majority will not make the cut, according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Bible clearly teaches that hell awaits those who know not Christ as personal Savior, and that is most people. But even for the saved, there is a future day of reckoning, a day in which we will be rewarded to the glory of God for the way we ran our race on earth. And when it comes to rewards, the Bible also teaches again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15, through 15, that some believers will not make the cut. Not when it comes to rewards. For those interested in meeting God and hearing the pronouncement, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, There is a very important word from God for us in Genesis chapter 6. It is so very important because it records the account of a man who made an extremely difficult cut. Let's review briefly. Verses 5 and 8 of chapter 6, 5 through 8. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of this wicked and corrupt world, there was this different man. But what happened to the rest of the godly line? In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, we've already learned that they had become corrupt. They had walked away from God. They had joined with the world. They had identified with it. And so the world has become so corrupt, even the godly who who had grown up in godly homes and had been trained in righteousness and trained to esteem people such as Enoch and people even such as Noah, These individuals had grown up and left the faith, and now there was left only one ethical choice for God, and that was to destroy the entire 
earth, except for Noah. This man is singled out. Think about it for a moment. Contemplate it. This man is singled out from all people on earth to survive this cut, to survive this devastation. By virtue of his righteousness, he escaped the judgment of a universal flood. Noah survived the ultimate holocaust. And that is the kind of man I want to learn from as I press toward my meeting with God. Indeed, God longs for us to contemplate Noah's life, and the text forces us to do so. In Genesis chapter 5, you will remember the genealogy there of, of Adam through Seth, Seth's line. And the tenth person, the one that is emphasized there in that genealogy of chapter 5, is whom? Is Noah. Chapter 5 and verse 32, he is elevated. As a matter of fact, the genealogy is following through on a vertical, in a vertical way, and then all of a sudden it comes to Noah and it spreads out in a horizontal manner and starts to name his children. His multiple children, not just the one child through whom the godly line passes, but he, all three of his sons are named. And so the text forces us to consider this man Noah. And then as we come to chapter 6 and verse 9, we read this is the account of Noah. There is, again, in the Hebrew text there, that toledoth statement. There's these statements that come throughout the Genesis record that draw attention to a major division in the book. So not only is Noah emphasized at the end of the genealogy in chapter 5, but now as we come to 6 and verse 9, he is emphasized with a major division of the book. This is the account of Noah. Some of the preceding accounts where this is the account of Adam's line, chapter 5, verse 1. And this is the account, the genealogies of the earth, chapter 2 and verse 4. So it's a major division, and it, it, it basically just puts a spotlight on Noah and says, pay attention to this man. And the text will now go on to develop over the course of a number of chapters here, Noah and his life and his escape from the flood. So the text itself is moving us, forcing us, if we're careful as we read it, to consider Noah. And specifically here before us today to consider how Noah survived. What were the realities operative in his life? In fact, the focus of the text from this point on is not so much why God judged the world as it is upon why God spared Noah question of extreme interest to those concerned to survive a yet future judgment. I think verse 9 encapsulates Noah's world and succinctly answers why it is that he survived the flood. Verse 9 says, this is the count of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. There is his character and the criterion by which God deemed him exempt from the flood. Now, in the next two phrases, this idea of Noah's righteousness is assumed, and that righteousness is broken down into two components. The first component is what? Verse 9, he was blameless among the people of his time. That refers to Noah as he relates to his culture. He's blameless, so the King James perfect, not perfect in moral perfection, as if there was no sin in Noah, but the word means complete or sound. Here the word is used in a moral sense. Noah was a man of moral integrity. His life was in full accord with the truth of God, and that was in stark 
contrast to his environment, to his world. We then see that second subcategory, that second component, that is that he walked with God. The form of this Hebrew verb indicates a willful decision on Noah's part. God did not press him to a wall and say, you must walk with me, Noah, take my hand, I'm going to force you to do so. But it indicates that Noah chose to walk with God. So we see his relationship with the world. He walks in a blameless manner in contrast to his godless world. And in relationship with God, he chooses willfully to walk with God against the grain of his culture. He was then, in a general sense, a righteous man. Now the text from this point, I think, goes on to expand upon these two concepts. And so we will look at at the two as they develop, first of all, Noah's world, and secondly, Noah's God. Seeking to understand this man, seeking to understand what made him tick, seeking to understand how it was that he avoided the flood, which again, I think, is the theme of this section of Scripture. Noah's world begins in verse 10. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a husband and a father, a father who raised three sons. The text will discuss these three men later, and so we will wait until then to develop it any further. But what is vital to understand about the parenting challenge which Noah faced, we find in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. That word corrupt becomes very important as the text unfolds. It is that Hebrew word shahat. It means ruined or spoiled. The world was broken. It was rotten to the core. There was no hope for recovery. You get a bad apple in the fridge and you pull it out, you have one thing to do with it, and that's throw it away because it isn't going to heal itself. It's not going to get any better. That was what was the case with the earth. It had become morally bankrupt. There was no hope. Verse 11 says that it was full of violence. I think maybe to some degree an unfortunate translation because it narrows it a bit. But certainly it draws to our memory chapter 4 and verse 8. Chapter 4 and verse 8, we read there that Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Violence. Now the world had become full of it. It reminds us as well of verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. I will take care of myself. Someone has hurt me, I will crush them, says Lamech boastfully. In chapter 4, this line of Cain, this line of godless people. Well, Lamech and Cain have won the day. We do need to note again, however, that the Hebrew word here, Hamas, is more inclusive than simple physical violence. It refers to ethical violence in general, of injustice. One has uh, described the word this way. It refers to cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate and often making, us, uh, often making use of physical violence and brutality. Hello, America. Isn't that about it? Right there. It is filled with Hamas. Cold-blooded, unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate, and often making use of physical violence and brutality. The world was full of it. It had become corrupt. 
And as is always the case, God saw, verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Those two words translated here, corrupt, are again those words shahat, to be ruined. The earth was ruined in God's sight. It was full of violence. It was full of Hamas. They had ruined their way, and God saw. We see there in verse 12, one more note, and that is it reads, therefore, all the people on earth had been corrupted. Again, the NIV always is skittish around the word flesh. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. And that is what is really the translation, or the better word for people is actually the word flesh. Flesh, the flesh on earth had become corrupted. It takes us back to chapter 6 and verse 3, where the word was translated there, mortal. My spirit will not always contend with man forever because he is flesh. And now we find in chapter 6 and verse 12 that the flesh had become corrupt. The world had become corrupt. Let's think about what we have here as we consider Noah's world just for a moment. God has painstakingly revealed that Noah's world was corrupt, ruined, morally rotten. According to Galatians chapter 5, it is the flesh that evidences itself in this rottenness, in this sin, in this violence against God. And according to Galatians 5, it means that Noah's world was a place characterized by sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. What impact did that culture have upon God's people? A devastating impact. It had won the day with God's people. What impact did that godless culture have upon Noah? None. None at all. According to Hebrews 11 and verse 7, by faith Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith In other words, it is possible for us to live in this godless world that we inhabit, to relate to its people, to use many of its technologies, to prosper in its system, and yet to remain uncorrupted. But what it meant was that Noah was very, very different. He breathed the same air, he ate the same food, he lived on the same planet, but he was a moral oddball. The entire world was bankrupt except Noah. It's a theme that's voiced often in this auditorium because it is so often expressed in the pages of Scripture. But we must be holy people. That is morally distinctive people. If you want God's approval, you will never have the world's approval. Noah distinguished himself with God by distinguishing himself from the world. To walk with the world is to turn your back upon God. To walk with God is to turn your back upon the world's philosophies, its attitudes, and its practices. How did Noah survive the flood? We look at his world and learn that he resisted the damning influence of sin, maintaining moral purity in total distinction from those around. I think there should certainly be in our lives as God's people a winsome spirit 
There should be a sweetness to our attitude as the unbelievers see our life. There should be a goodness to us that flows not just toward our families and toward other believers, but a goodness that flows from us to those who don't know God. But along with that winsomeness, there must always be maintained a distinction. That is a balance that is so difficult to maintain. When we get close to the godless, when we seek to be friend as we should, when we seek to be kind as we should, when we seek to be winsome as we should, what is so easy for us is to become tainted with the attitudes and the actions, the activities of the godless world. That distinction must be maintained if we are going to resist this world and to honor the Lord. To be people of moral distinction. That was Noah's world. We looked then secondly at Noah's God in verse 13 and how he related to God. Verse 13, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with Hamas, with violence, with ethical error because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God speaks. It's interesting here, I've been drawing attention to that word shahat, that word that's translated here, corrupt, because the same word is used here in this verse, verse 13, though it's translated differently. It's translated here, destroy. It's that same word, verses 11 and 12, translated corrupt or ruined, and that's why I like the translation ruined, because the world had become ruined through moral bankruptcy, and God now says, using the same word, I am going to ruin it. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to ruin it. Like a dying dog, God elects to put the world out of the misery it had brought upon its own head. And we find in these words power that is difficult for us to imagine. As I was meditating on this passage, it just struck me. God says he's going to destroy the earth. I mean, who says that kind of a thing? If somebody... Let's... Take the president of some country, our own, or some other president that stood up and said, I've decided I'm going to destroy the earth today. What would happen? I'd be impeached and put in prison immediately, and he wouldn't do a thing. He'd be stuck away and imprisoned or something like that. Or maybe somebody would decide that on their own and launch a couple of uh, uh, scuds or a couple of uh, nuclear bombs somewhere and destroy a few cities, but... They'd be taken out immediately. We can't do such things, but God can. He just decides in his own counsel he's going to destroy the earth. And he can do it. And we should stand in awe of this God. We have stood in awe of him as we watched him create the world, and now he decides in his own counsels to destroy the world. Like Noah, we too are really living in that same kind of a world. That's our God too. Because like Noah, we are, we are living on borrowed time. This earth is headed for another holocaust. God has decreed it, and it will come to pass. Just as Noah was looking ahead to the flood that was going to destroy the earth, so we are looking ahead to a destruction that God has promised, that God has decreed, and that will come. In this environment of pending judgment, God issues a command to Noah. And I see grace there as well. He gives him a command. There's something to do. Verse 14, so make yourself an ark. This is all has to be coming to Noah slowly here. <laughs> you know, make an ark. 
I mean, that is a, that, that's a great command, as we will see. But there's a principle here for us as we look at Noah's God and as we think about our God. One way that God provides for the purity of His people is to give us hard, hard work to do. The children of Israel exit Egypt, and what does God say to do? Build a tabernacle. And there are pages of text as to how that tabernacle is to be built, all with, with the walls and the, and the structure and all of the, the, the ornamental details, the furniture in there. As a matter of fact, there's even an ark. God's people go to building this ark and building this tabernacle in the desert. God gives these people wandering around in the desert something to do. God chooses to rescue here Noah on account of his righteousness and then puts him to work. And the text which follows illustrates just how hard this work would be. And as we go on now in the text, please catch this point, will you? The details which follow are very sketchy in many regards. They leave many questions unanswered because the point of these details is not to satisfy our curiosity. All it does is pique our curiosity in many places. But as one has so well said, these instructions are intended to demonstrate the meticulous care with which these godly and exemplary men went about their tasks of obedience to God's will. They obeyed God with all their hearts. And that is exactly what we find in Noah's walk with God. Simple obedience rendered with lots and lots of sweat. Verse 14, so make yourself an ark. Now the details of cypress wood. Probably a, goes too far in the translation. It's actually gopher wood, which is an unknown wood. We don't know what it, what it was. But of, of gopher wood, make rooms in it. That word rooms is uh, always used in the Old Testament. Every other use of bird nests. So there's a, some type of idea of little cages or nests of some sort. A nesting uh, idea. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make nests in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Well, so far, so good. Doesn't sound too hard. And then he goes into verse 15, and we see the size of this ark. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. This, of course, in the original coming in cubits. We're not sure exactly what the length of a cubit was, essentially the forearm of an individual. But uh, one of the smaller, and, and what most agree would probably be the length, was 18 inches, which means we have a ship, 450 feet long, football field 300 feet, 450 feet long, go half again as far, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, a little more than twice as high as this building. These dimensions would make the ark the size of a small cargo ship today, and they're also, we understand, ideal for the stability of a ship. Ideal dimensions. According to one scientist, a ship of these proportions could tip in almost any direction, 90 degrees, and as soon as the wave passed, the boat would right itself immediately. It would also tend to align itself parallel with the direction of major wave advances, making it subject to a minimum of pitching on the inside. Uh, they were interested in that. But this is a huge project. Verse 16, make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Uh, we don't have a clue of what that means, really, frankly. There's all kinds of ideas that are, that are expressed, but we really don't know. 
The word roof translated King James window is because we don't know what the word means. Uh, again, it's not given here for our curiosity. We're not, th these details are not given so that somebody can go find the ark on Mount Ararat and say, this is the right one. I mean, that maybe can happen. I don't know, but that's not the point of this text. The details are very sketchy. So whatever it is, it has been suggested that the idea was an 18-inch gap at the top of the entire ship so that allowing ventilation and sunlight to come in. We're really not sure. The second part of verse 16 says, Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Now that is very vital for us to understand because this large ship has three floors of 15 feet. Also possibly... On those floors, on the walls, are cages that are stacked uh, in place. So God then declares the purpose of this ark. There's this mammoth vision that God gives to Noah. Build this 450-foot ship with three floors, and now, verse 17, I'll talk to you about the purpose of it. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. That just doesn't hit us like it hit Noah, because floodwaters were unknown to him. We've seen the destruction that water can cause, if not personally, we've at least seen it on pictures in the media, but Noah had never seen floodwater. Noah had never seen rain. Chapter 2 and verse 5 says it's never rained yet. He doesn't know what rain is. There's, it's a different environment, a different world. We remember this canopy that is above this, uh, this invisible canopy of water that is in, in the atmosphere, and it, it leads for a perfect, uh, equal in, uh, environment. He doesn't know what rain is. And God says, I'm going to bring rain. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth. I'm going to destroy everything with water. That's a concept to Noah, but not one he understands. Noah had to go about building this massive ship without the help of craftsman tools and without even a hint of what a flood might look like. What is the point? Noah has to place faith in God's warning, just as we do. What does it mean that the world will be destroyed by fire? We don't really know. We've never experienced that. We can't fully understand it. We know what fire is, and Noah knew what water was. There were seas. We don't know. We have to trust God's warning and live appropriately. God says here that every creature with the breath of life in it will perish, verse 17. And that breath of life, the idea there is every air-breathing animal. So some marine species would have survived the floodwaters in the water. Though, of course, many marine organisms would have been destroyed in the violent upheavals that we will read about later as well. At any rate, this is a word of pending doom. But Noah has found grace in God's eyes, and so there is hope. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You, Noah, will be spared. And the text is very careful to emphasize you throughout that verse. Why? Because I will establish my covenant with you. That is vital to understand. It's very significant. Noah would not be preserved from the destruction of the flood by luck. You've seen that uh, Channel 2 advertisement on the great escapes. You know, they must, somebody got tired somewhere of showing all these animals killing other animals. I mean, that's really some incredible footage. And they came up with a good concept, a really interesting concept, and that's to show animals that got away. They all these great escapes. Now, I don't think any of those animals escaped by luck. 
I believe in providence, not luck, but that's not how Noah escapes here. He doesn't just get away by luck. He gets away on the basis of the promise of the God who is going to destroy this world. He has an in with the Creator. He has an in with the Destroyer. He has a relationship with this God who promises him in covenant that he will not destroy him. Now, having issued that comforting promise, God sends Noah more work. More work. Verse 19. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Come on. Are we really supposed to believe this? That's what the critics say. Are we really supposed to believe that one man could get all the animals on earth into his ark, or two of every kind? Well, if God's word says it happened, I believe it happened. But let's consider, because I don't think it's much of a stretch of faith by any means. We just need to think about it with honest, in honest terms. The three decks of the ark accounted for nearly 96,000 square feet of floor space, which, as has been calculated, is approximately 550 freight cars. Those who herd cattle in those freight cars know how many fit. And they tell us that that would house about 150,000 sheep. So we have floor space, not including wall space, for 150,000 sheep. Now since most animals are smaller than sheep, and since even most dinosaurs were no larger than dogs, that's not what we hear, but that's what I understand is the case, and of course you can take a baby dinosaur. You don't have to take the big ones, right? Let me put it together again. Since most animals are smaller than sheep, since most dinosaurs were no larger than a sheep, and since biologists claim that there are only 18,000 species of animals today, there was ample room in this floating box to provide cover for two of every species of animal on earth, even taking into account the fact that there may have been many species that have since become extinct. But it's not difficult to imagine room for two of every species of animal on such a huge vessel. Now I think we should assume from verse 20, you notice that there God says that they will come to you right at the end of verse 20. I think we should assume that God providentially brought the animals to Noah. Again, can we believe this? Well, it, it, it's very provable that there was enough space for all of, two of every animal on the earth. But are we to believe that they all came to Noah? There's three factors to consider. First of all, uh, no doubt God moved in a mighty way. But it's interesting to consider that, first of all, we have yet this uniform climate. Which means that animals are evenly distributed over the globe. There's no species that are isolated by either latitude or altitude. Now, we don't know if God put all the animals in one place when he created or not. But however far they have spread at this point... There is no difference in latitude and altitude and those types of barriers that we know in our world. Noah's not dealing with that. In other words, all species of animals were local. And assuming that Noah was somewhere in the range of where civilization was developing, that's where animals were certainly placed to creation. It's very 
possible it would be the case that all species are near him. Second consideration is the issue of migration, and third is the issue of hibernation, and I defer here to the expert remarks of Dr. Henry Morris. He says, scientists, are, scientists as yet have no naturalistic explanation for the remarkable migratory directional instincts possessed by animals, especially by birds, which enable them to adjust to the sharp latitudinal and seasonal temperatures and other changes that characterize the post-flood world. Another remarkable physiological mechanism possessed by most animals, possibly latent in all, as a protection against sharp temperatures and other climatological changes is the ability to suspend all bodily changes in a state of hibernation. This ability enables an animal to pass the winter in very confined quarters with little or no food intake or bodily excretions. The phenomena of estivation is a similar state of dormancy during very hot weather. As these animals arrived at the ark, partook of a good meal, and then entered the ark in response to the suddenly darkened sky and the chill in the air, they settled down for a year-long sleep in their respective nests. I don't think that's stretching it too far. There's definitely a possibility there, even in our world today, with the changes that have taken place, we know of hibernation, we know of migration, we know these, these internal workings of, of some animals, and it's very possible that God, in his unique way, moved these animals to migrate toward the ark and to hibernate once within it. Uh, it could have been quite a chaotic trip if it had not been for something along the lines of caging or hibernating or something. We don't know. But again, none of that really matters. The Bible says that it happened, all of the details are not really the issue. I think what matters most here, not the details of ark building and ark filling, what matters is what we read in verse 22, which binds the whole section together. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's what the text wants us to see. That's what God wants you and me to consider today when we think of this big project of the ark and Noah's obedience. Noah did everything God said. Now look back again at chapter 6 and verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. Is in my understanding of that text is that God has limited a 120-year period for people to repent. 120 years from the issuing of this decree until the time that the waters of the flood come upon the earth. So Noah has a 120-year period to build this ship. Um, I don't think there's any reason to believe that just he and his three sons built it. Very likely others could have been joined with them. But rest assured, Noah stayed busy for those 120 years. And rest assured, he took a lot of criticism from the godless world around. 1 Peter 3.20 says that God waited patiently for Noah to build the ark. 120 years. 2 Peter 2.6 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What were people doing in those 120 years? Luke 17, 26 and 27 says, Just as in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. So we have the judgment of the flood. People are eating, drinking, marrying, partying, having a good time, just living life prosperously. Prosperously. Right up until the day 
that if the sky began to drip and then to pour. And so it will be in the judgment that awaits us. People will be marrying and giving in marriage. There will be parties, there will be spending, there will be prosperity. In other words, while Noah preached righteousness probably as much by building the ark as anything else, people went on their merry way in disregard of God. Now think about this as we bring it to close. In order to obey God, Noah had to trust God. And he had to work much harder than the godless world around him, didn't he? He had to eat. Sometimes we get, I think, this idea, Noah just built an ark. That's just what he did. But Noah had to eat. He had to provide for his family. He had to protect his family. He had to do all the things every other family was doing. But while they partied, he hammered. While they relaxed, he sawed wood. While they they planned self-centered dreams, he meditated on how to arrange the inside of the ark and to get all the food in. They had only to feed their own mouths and cover their own heads. He had to plan food and shelter for a floating zoo. And he had to fund the whole project himself. There was no city council that was going to get behind him on this project. You know, Christian, it's really not supposed to be any different for us. It isn't really any different for us. Don't go out and put an ark in your yard. Start an ark in your yard this afternoon. Of course, that's not the case. But like the world around, we too have to pour our energies into feeding and clothing and housing and protecting ourselves and our families. There's work to do. We have to make purchases and plan for our future and educate children and just just like the rest of the godless world around. We have all of these projects and all of this work just to live. But for God's people, there is this constant drain of time and money and talent we call church. There's ministry that gets into the mix. We invest ourselves, we sweat, we pour our lives into the teaching of the Scriptures, into corporate worship, in prayer meetings, in evangelization of the lost. Like the world around us, we have homes to care for, but also a church building to care for. Like everyone else, we have bills to pay, but also 10% or more of our income to carry on the work of God is given as we seek for the church to move forward. It's hard work being a member of God's family. It's hard work. Well, teachers, those of you who labor on those lessons, Pray for those children. That's a project the world doesn't have. But teachers, Wednesday night workers, construction, maintenance workers, disciples, nursery workers, givers, servants, whoever you are, when you get tired, sometimes just close your eyes and think about an old man building a 450-foot ark by hand. Just think of him. For 120 years, And as you remember that righteous man planing logs, just remember, as God's people, we are not on this earth to sit on our duffs and to party life away. We are here to serve God because there's a judgment coming. We're here to serve Him with the realization that this godless world in which and on which we live has a destiny with destruction. We have work to do. How do you make the final cut, Noah? 
How do you survive a universal flood? How do you escape judgment through righteousness? Well, we know ultimately that the answer is through salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, He is the ark. For us, He is the only salvation. We do not come to God because we are doing works. We come to God with nothing and plead for nothing but the promise of God, the covenant of safety in Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are believers, as we gather as God's people today, we distinguish ourselves from the moral ruin of the godless world around us. That's how we make the cut. We distinguish ourselves as holy and as unique people. We walk blamelessly and solidly in a world that is bankrupt morally. And secondly, to put it simply, we put our trust in God. He tells us these strange things, that there's an eternity to be won, that there's a destruction that is coming upon this earth. He tells us these strange things. We trust Him, just like Noah trusted Him that there would be a flood, whatever that means. We trust God. We believe what He says. We trust His commands. And we let Him take care of the course of history. Christian, that's where I think we struggle so often. We don't let God take care of the course of history. We try to worry the course of history in our lives and everybody else's life. But what we need to do is roll up our sleeves and get busy fulfilling His work on this earth. Our ultimate rest comes in glory, and our glory will come as our Master commends us as survivors, as faithful servants. Lord, I pray that it would be the passion of our heart to know your commendation in heaven. There is no greater description, no greater plead, Lord, that this might be a place in which you are honored and your gospel is promoted. I thank you for the way this assembly gives to this evangelist. God, with Paul, I say that there is nothing in the gifts of this church that supplies my ultimate needs. But I thank you for the heart and the spirit of your people. I thank you for their insight and their courage. And I pray, dear God, that we might take that same principle of what we do in our small assembly and apply that principle throughout this world. God, will you help us to that end? You own all things. The cattle on a thousand hills, and you own the hills. We know, dear God, that you can supply our needs, and we ask that you would do that according to your riches in Christ Jesus. We ask, dear God, for more of an experience of this joy of giving. Please enable us as a church, enable us as individuals to know that joy, to experience it, and to pursue it. I pray for those, dear God, who receive ideas like this, and maybe, I don't know of anyone, but maybe there's some here who would be offended, who would be turned off. I pray, dear God, that you warm their cold heart. I pray for those, God, I know there are some who struggle financially just to stay afloat. There might be some great concerns on their part of how they could give. I pray, God, that you'll teach them, that you will instruct them and guide them and aid them and prosper them according to your will and grace, that they might give more fully, more faithfully. 
Most importantly, I pray for each one as we bow our heads, God, and as we do business with you. That you would convict and convince where we might give more. That we would be at peace with what we give if it is, in fact, pleasing. Do your work through the ministry of your spirit in the lives of your people. Be glorified in our lives as a church, we pray. We bring these thoughts before you. Dear God, I plead. There is one who does not know the grace that you have given to us in Christ. You would show them that grace and show them the Savior today. Bring them from their sin into the riches of forgiveness. I pray, dear God, in the name and authority of our great Savior.